0: We're Missy Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So Malachi, that's where we're going in the month of November. We, as you noticed, we're covering more than a chapter today. So all the way through verse nine of chapter two, and if you were paying attention, there's some pretty harsh things said in there, some pretty even gross things said in there, which is why I asked Carolyn to read, because I thought, let's get a more gentle, soothing voice to soften this a little bit. Um, but we're, we're not going to soften it for the rest of it, right? So we're just going gonna to get at it. It's going to be good. Um, and since we're covering more than a chapter of Old Testament prophetic literature, I figured I'd start with just a brief overview of the entire Old Testament. That sound good, because really we can't we can't really grapple with Malachi if we don't have an understanding of what's happened before that in the story. Malachi is the last, at least in our canon in the in the Christian uh, Bible, it's the last book we have of the Old Testament, but it's also it's the last prophecy, the last prophetic word that God's people heard before a period of of what we call the intertestamental period. It just means this time between Old Testament and New Testament, a real period of history for 400 years where God didn't speak through another prophet until John, the baptizer, shows up. And so it's very important. It's like when you think about what what are your last words to somebody, right? If someone's going on a long trip, you're not going to see them for a long time, what's the last thing you're going to say to them? It's probably going to be something important. Or if someone's like on their deathbed, their last words that they can muster up with all their strength, it's probably gonna be something important. Even like a commencement speech, you know, at a graduation, it's like, okay, we're sending you guys off. Last words, something important. But we gotta understand these words through a history of God with his people. And so at the very beginning of all things, there's a creator who made all things. God who brought all the chaos into order and he formed all of creation And he spoke and it was good. And then his crowning jewel of his creation, he creates humanity. He creates a man and a woman. And he says, this is very good. And he makes them to be in his image. That means to be like living statues, living representatives of who this creator God is like. To show the rest of creation what he's like. To put him on display. And to enter into a partnership with him. To partner with him to care for his good creation to cultivate the land and bring out all the potential that he had put there to make it good, to be fruitful and multiply, to in his likeness as he created life, to also create more humans together. And it was this really beautiful, good call. And they lived in a really beautiful, good world until, until they believed this lie that they didn't, they didn't have to just be like God, they could actually be in God's place. And so that the second that they reached out and took that for themselves this opportunity to be in God's place, to be God over their own lives, over their own world as they saw it, the very fabric of God's good creation started unraveling. Things started breaking and falling apart. And yet God, from that point on, he was on a mission to restore it. He wasn't willing to give up on his creation. He wasn't willing to give up on his people, the humanity that he made to partner with him to care for his creation. And so ever since then, the whole book of the Old Testament, the whole whole Bible is about God pursuing this mission to bring restoration to all things. It's this movement from his good creation to make it a good new creation once again, a renewed creation. And so God calls this guy Abraham, and there's nothing special about Abraham. But Abraham is someone who God comes to and says, I want you to be my representative to the rest of the people. Just like he had the first man and woman be his representative to all of creation. I want you to be a representative to the rest of my people, to the rest of creation, so that they will know what I'm like. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. You see, when God ever calls somebody specifically, whenever he, to use that that big scary word, elects somebody, when he calls somebody, it's simply for the purpose that they would share what God is like with those around him, around them. So he calls Abraham and he says, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you, out of your descendants. You're gonna have kids, they're gonna have kids, you're gonna grow into a people called Israel. And I want this nation not to just hoard this, this relationship with me to themselves, but to open it up and invite others into that. And so that was their call. But just like the first man and woman, they failed miserably at this time and time again. They didn't want God to be king over them. They wanted a human king, just like at the beginning of the story. No, no, no. We don't wanna just be representatives of God who rules over creation. We wanna rule ourselves, right? And so they they choose human kings and those human kings are terrible. They're terrible. And and guess what? Nothing's changed, right? Our human rulers and leaders today are terrible. Right? The, The guy standing before you is a terrible leader too. Just this morning... I don't know why. There's nothing bad about today, but I just felt like I was in a rush the whole time, and I probably snapped at a few of you. I know I snapped at my wife in front of a few of you. I just want to say I'm sorry, and I need Jesus, okay? But that's just the reality for all humanity. We have all blown it time and time again to show and represent to the rest of creation what God's like, and so God, he's patient with his people, and he He keeps pursuing them. He keeps coming after them. And at one point, he he has to actually hand them over to what they want. They don't want God to be their king. They want a human king. So he lets this other human kingdom come and take them over. And so they become enslaved to the Babylonian Empire for 70 years. And this is actually, God warns them through another prophet, through Jeremiah. He says, this is going to happen, but here's what I want you to do. When you're in Babylon, I want you to be my representatives. I want you to build. I want you to create. I want you to develop relationships with the people around you. I want you to see that Babylon flourishes because if it does, you will flourish. And so just like as a nation of Israel, you were supposed to show the rest of the nations what I'm like, but you failed at it. So now I'm taking you to another nation and you're gonna do that job there. But of course, they were not very good at it then either. And after a while, after 70 years, God finally allows them to go back to their land that he had given them, go back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild this temple, this place of worship. And oddly enough, a lot of the Israelites don't want to go back. They like their homes that they've established in Babylon. They're comfortable there. They even like the gods they're worshiping there. But some do, some go back and you can find this story in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They go back and they rebuild this temple and they rebuild their city and they are excited now. They get to enter back into this relationship with God through the temple and through sacrifices and through priests. And they're thinking, now this is it. Now, this promise that God had given us to make us a great nation, to give us a great land, that his rescuer would come and be our king this is going to happen now. But it doesn't come the way they expect it to. And so after a while, they begin to get apathetic. There's some kids in this room. Do you guys know what that word apathetic means? It means like you just don't really care, right? Just whatever. Like some of you are apathetic about school probably, right? Just whatever. I don't don't care about it. And so they started going through the motions. They became a people who would do all the things that God asked them to do on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were not in it. And if really, if we're honest, they were barely doing the things God asked them to do. And so he would ask them to do sacrifices to cover for their sin. That sounds like a weird thing, right? But remember at the very beginning of the story, when the first man and the first woman rebelled against God and decided to take what was not theirs, to try to be kings over their own world. What happened when the fabric of creation started unraveling and everything started falling apart is they suddenly were filled with shame. Fear and shame of their nakedness. And what does God do in his grace and in his mercy? He clothes them with animal skins, right? The first death that we find in the story of the history of the whole world, the first sacrifice was an animal so that God's crowning, creation, his humanity, who's supposed to partner with him, their shame would be covered so that they can now function the way they were supposed to. And so God continued this. There's a whole story behind sacrifice we don't have time to get into today because we're covering over a chapter of Old Testament prophecy, right? But this, this started to develop and continue, the system where God said, if you would do these certain things, it would make you clean, and you can actually come back and enter into my presence, and you could function the way that humanity is supposed to function, and you could truly partner with me and show the rest of the world how good I am. And one of those things was sacrificing a pure, spotless animal. That means an animal without any problems, without any defect, no, no uh, sickness, it's not hurt or lame or blind or anything like that. And if you sacrifice this life, your life would be spared. And so God's people started going through the motions and they would sacrifice animals, but they weren't bringing their best. They weren't finding the best little sheep that they had. They were sacrificing like the ones that they don't want, right? And then they were were supposed to give to the building of the temple, but they weren't giving the amount God had called them to give. They were kind of going like, no, 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 uh, I need all this right here, and God can have this tiny little portion, right? He'll make do. And so they were going through the motions on the outside, but inside, they just didn't care. And so a 100 years after all that, 100 years after they could go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild their city, enter back into this beautiful relationship with God, Malachi shows up. We get this word, from God, basically saying, Listen, you guys have blown it time and time again, and you're still blowing it. But God's got one final message for them before it's silent for 400 years. So he sends Malachi. Now, Malachi literally means my messenger. It's actually the same word you, that we have translated to angel nowadays. So there's been some people who think Malachi was actually an angel, but that word angel just means messenger, right? So very well could be a human messenger. Uh, Because that name means my messenger, it could be used for any prophet from God. A prophet is just somebody who God sends with a message to tell his people. So it could have been anybody. And so there's also been thought that maybe uh, Malachi was not a specific person, a specific prophet, but this was a, a compilation of things God had been saying to his people. I don't know if that's true. I believe Malachi was really an actual specific person, prophet at this specific time because that's what God did over and over again. He would send specific people at a specific time with a specific message. But guess what? That doesn't matter. The point of this book, the point of the book of Malachi is the conversation that's happening between God and his people. And there are six debates that take place throughout this whole book. So for this whole month of November, we're gonna be looking at these six debates. This morning, there's two of them. Six times where God makes a claim about his people and about how they failed at something or about how he's held up his side of something. And each of those six times, they respond with like a, yeah, right. No, prove it. Uh Uh-uh. You guys ever get responses like that from your kids or your spouse or a friend? Uh Uh-uh. That's that's Israel's response to all six of these. And then God comes back, all six of them. He comes back and goes, let me tell you how. And he's patient. Seriously, like when my kid's like, uh-uh, I'm like, go to your room. I don't want to talk to you right now. But God's patient, and he has a dialogue with his people. And so we get this message from Malachi the messenger, and it says the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, some of your translations might have said the oracle, right? I think that was the, in the ESV what Carolyn read this morning, the oracle, that's a weird word, right? And a lot of times it just gets translated to prophecy. But that word oracle literally means a burden. The burden of the messenger. This is a burden because God's about to say some really hard things. And so Malachi's getting this word and he's going, Really? You want me to say that? This is a burden. I got to be the one to go and tell the people, I don't know if you caught this when she was reading it, that you're going to smear dung in someone's face? Yeah, the Bible, you guys, it's crazy. You kids, do you know what dung is? Poo-poo. God said he's going to smear poo-poo on someone's face? Did that get your attention? Are you back with me now? Okay, we're going to get to it. The Bible is crazy, but it's true. And listen, if you're trying to tell this story about just this good God, this fluffy haired Jesus, like really nice and gentle, you wouldn't include this story. But this is a real relationship between a real God, a personal God, and his real people. And they've blown it over and over again. And he's been so patient with them. And this is how he starts. You know, when uh, I got to like discipline one of my sons, I don't go straight to a whooping. If if that's gotta come, what I try to do when I'm being a good dad, it's not all the time. What I try to do is I sit them down first and we have a conversation. And the first thing I wanna tell them is, I love you. We're gonna have a hard conversation. Maybe a whooping's coming, but I want you to know through it all, I love you. That's exactly how God starts. Verse two, first thing in quotes that comes from the Lord, I have loved you. Now listen, we don't have a good translation for this in the English. In in the Hebrew, there's this beautiful thing called the perfect tense. We have past tense, present tense, future tense. And we don't have a way to cram them all together. But in the Hebrew, this is what's called a perfect tense. God is saying, I have loved you. I still love you. and I will always love you. That's how God starts this conversation. That's how he starts his message to his people. That's a beautiful way to start, right? It's just like he softens the blow before getting to this, the poo smearing. He's like, hey, just remember, I love you. I've always loved you. I love you now. I will always love you. That's never going to change. And what do you expect when you say to somebody, I love you? Like, what do you expect to get back? What do you expect the response to be? Go ahead, Ethan. I love you too, right? That'd be a nice thing. Like even when my kids are mad at me, I'm like, I love you. Like, I love you too. <laughs> at least they say it. God doesn't get that. What do they say? They go, how have you loved us? That's not a, like a question of an inquiring mind. Oh, really? Please tell me how. I, I, I would love to understand this more. No, no, no. You know, like sometimes... You have kids that ask the question, why, 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 over and over, like that two-year-old stage, because they really want to know why, why, why. But then they hit a certain age where it's like a, why? Why do I got to go clean my room? Like, that's what this is. This is a, How have you loved us? Uh-uh, prove it. No, you haven't, is what they might as well say. If I'm God right then, like, seriously, you guys know, like, Someone, someone responds that way. You haven't loved us. All right, I got to tell he, he's in the room, but he's probably not paying attention right anyway. So we took our kids to Disneyland years ago, years ago when you're like allowed to go to Disneyland, and it was still expensive, but not as expensive as it is today. And we went to Disneyland, we're having a great time, we're hanging out at the park all day long, and then it was time to leave. And I'm like, all right, guys, let's go. It's time to go back to our hotel. And one of my kids was like, What? We're leaving? Why? And I looked at him and I said, "Because it's 11 p.m. and we've been walking all day in my feet." Hurt. And he goes, "This is the worst day ever." And I was like, "We're at the happiest place on earth." We just spent I'm not going to tell you how much money, and we spent all day walking around this place. And it's the worst day ever? Are you kidding me? This is, how, this is how, like, a small microscopic version of how Israel's response was to God. Really, how have you loved us? It's Like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many things God could have said, responded with in that moment? Don't you remember how I saved you out of Egypt? You were slaves there for 400 years, and I saved you, and I brought you out, and sent 10, 10 signs to Pharaoh and his people about how I'm the true God, not him, not their gods they worshiped. And I did a miraculous thing bringing you across that Red Sea. I saved you and I destroyed your enemies. Could have said that. He could have said, do you know how like immediately after that and Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law and immediately you all break it? And you, you just, you make this fake statue of a fake god, a golden cow, and you start worshiping that thing and say, this is the god that brought us out of Egypt? Do you know how I didn't like just destroy you all right then? That's how I loved you, right? Do you know how I I brought you into this land, Canaan, that was the promised land, the land that was abundant with resources, and I gave you a home? you know how I saved you time and time again from all these other nations? And God doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he has this very strange response. He says, verse two, he says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. I don't know about you guys, but that just seems weird to me. That's a weird response from God. That would be like my wife saying, Chris, prove to me that you love me. And I just walk over to another woman and I punch her in the face. And I'm like, see that? (laughs) And she's like, that's not what I asked for. That doesn't, how does you violently hating someone prove that you love me, right? It doesn't make sense. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were the sons. So you had Abraham, who God called, right? Remember, we, we went over that in the overview of the Old Testament. God calls Abraham. And then Abraham finally has a son named Isaac, And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob, who later gets renamed Israel. This is who the whole people of Israel come out of. And then Esau and his descendants become another nation called the Edomites. So you have Jacob and Esau, they're twins, they're born. Esau came out first, and we're told that Jacob was holding on to his heel when he comes out. Now, I have twins. They're not in the room, right? Okay, good. If I had both of my twins, Jonas and Cannon, stand up here with me right now, and I was like, listen, these are both my sons. They're twins. They're brothers. One of them I love. The other one I hate. Can't stand them. Like, you guys would think I'm a terrible father, right? Like, who says that? I love them both equally, by the way. It's always equal. It's always equal. That's what you tell them. I love them all. I love all three of my sons. But God says, "Jacob, I love Esau, I hated." It's so weird. What He's doing is he's giving them a history lesson. OK? Now listen, there's a, there's a few uh, ways that we can look at this. There's a lot of like smart theologians who have tried to settle this matter, because it, it doesn't sit right with us to think that God hated somebody, like from the womb. He didn't even do anything yet. He didn't have a choice in the matter. That sounds really, really hard. So there's been some, a lot of theologians have landed on this idea. It's like, it's not really hate. It's Jacob I loved and Esau I loved less, right? And there's probably something to that. You know, when Jesus was around his disciples and they're telling him, hey, your mother and your brothers are calling for you. And he's like, who are my mother and my brothers, right? It's those who do the will of the Lord. And at one point he tells his followers you have to hate your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters to follow me in my kingdom. And that sounds super harsh. And so what they're saying is, yeah, Jesus didn't really mean hate them because Jesus, this is the same God who gave the command to honor your mother and father, right? He's not contradicting that law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And what he's saying is in comparison, you, you need to love me and pursue the things of my kingdom so greatly, so passionately, so much commitment and dedication in that, that by comparison, it looks like you're willing to forsake your own family, right? And so that could be part of it. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say loved less. It says hated. We got to understand when we read about hate from God. God's hatred is much different than our hatred. As soon as I read that, like you're thinking about the people that you've hated, right? And you're thinking about what you want to do to those people sometimes. And our hatred gets really, really ugly. And our hatred brings out violence. And we want to see destruction and damage come upon. I believe, as I looked at the original text of this and the Hebrew, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but taking into account what Jesus said as well and what lots of smart theologians smarter than me have said and the original word here is that what God's saying is, Jacob, I turned my favor on and Esai turned it away from. If, if I had two people standing here, in order for me to turn towards someone, I would have to turn away from the other person. Now listen, it still sounds hard, doesn't it? Listen. Remember what we said, anytime God chooses somebody, it's always, 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 always with the purpose and the mission of that somebody sharing it with everyone else. Always. God does not call one person and then say, I don't want this other person at all. He calls a people and says, I want you to go and share my good news and invite the other nations in. That's what he tells Israel. I will bless you so you will be a blessing. I want you to be a light to the nations. You're to be a kingdom of priests. That means you're going out and you're, you're bringing people into relationship with God again. And we know that God did not hate Esau because Jacob, he's, he's acting a fool in his early years, actually pretty much all of his years, but he, he's a punk to his brother and he runs off because he ends up stealing his inheritance and he's afraid to ever see him again. And what do we find out about Esau? God actually blessed him. He gave him his own land. He gave him his own people. He gave him a ton of resources. And then Jacob starts coming back and he's conniving. He's trying to come up with a way to get out of trouble with his brother, thinking his brother hates him. He's going to kill him surely if he sees him. Esau comes to him with such grace and forgiveness. He says, don't worry about it. God's already provided for me and he's providing for you. And there's forgiveness and he welcomes him, right? So I I believe what's happening here is God saying, listen, there are two brothers and your custom in the Jewish custom is to always give all your inheritance, all your belongings, all the rights of your family to the oldest brother. Here's how I've loved you. I actually chose to give it to the younger brother so that he would be a blessing to everyone else because this is what God does. He flips the tables on people. He turns things upside down. David was the youngest, scraggliest little brother who got to become king, right? Joseph was the youngest brother who got to become like the top dude next to Pharaoh in Egypt. God always had a pattern of doing this, that the younger brother actually reversing what humans thought and their wisdom should happen, going, no, 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 this younger one's gonna actually, and there's a reason for that. God wasn't just doing it just to go playing uh, playing mind games with people. God was doing it to tell a story. Israel is called God's son. His firstborn son even. And Israel failed, failed to live up to what the father wanted over and over again. And so there was another son who would come. Another son who would come after, who would actually uphold what Israel was supposed to do who would have the full inheritance of the father and would use that to give to the rest of the world. That's what God was trying to do through Jacob and through Israel. I have loved you in this way that I've given you this beautiful task of sharing my love with the whole world. And what have you done? You've grown apathetic. Your love's grown cold. You've spat in my face. And he gives them a couple of ways how they've done that. They're like, how have we done this, God? That's the second debate. How have you loved us? Here's how. I chose you to share my love with the whole world. How have we not loved you? That's the second one. Because God goes, here's how. And then he turns around and he says to them, he goes, verse six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear for me? says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. And they go, how? How have we despised your name? So God's basically saying, how have I loved you, really? Let me tell you how I've loved you. How have you loved me, though? He turns that question back on them. And they're like, well, what? We didn't do nothing, what? What do you mean, how have we loved you? We're, what? You know, like when you catch your kids, like, all right, who, got, who did this? In the kitchen, like, well, it wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about, right? I'm picking on kids a lot today. I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's like, kids just show what we are like, really. And adults try to mask it in front of other adults sometimes, but that's how we all are. What, well, guy? I don't know what you're talking about. How have we despised your name? How have we done that? Have you noticed throughout this whole thing, he keeps saying, uh, either in the ESV translation, which Carolyn read, the Lord of Hosts, or in the translation I'm reading out of the CSB, the Lord of armies. Have you noticed that? That word host just means army. So whenever you hear like, there's a host of angels show up, we're coming up to the Advent season. When there's a host of angels that show up to proclaim Jesus' birth coming, it, it's literally, don't picture a bunch of angels playing harps with like wings and halos. It's an army. That's got an army. And so, He keeps reminding them over and over again, I am the God of an army of angels, an army of representatives, an army of messengers. He keeps putting before them, do you remember who I am? I've loved you greatly, but you have not shown any honor or respect for me. And he goes, bring one of these sacrifices that you brought in front of your governor so remember, they were allowed to go back to build their, their home again and their temple in Jerusalem, but they were actually still under Persian rule. It was when the Persians took over the Babylonians that they were allowed to go back, but the Persians said, we're still in charge, but you can go back to your city, you can build your temple and you can worship it the way you want to, that's fine. Just know that we still, we still hold the keys, we still lay down the law. And so they actually had a governor who was set up for that city, a Persian governor who would come and he would just check in and make sure everything's okay. And usually what he wanted was some, like, a little bit of love and and stuff coming his way to make sure that he didn't oppress them. So you would bribe your governor with the finest things you had. And God's going, your governor comes, who's not even one of your own people, and you, like, you do the best for that person. Politics aside, whoever you want to be mayor by uh, Tuesday, like, if the mayor of Phoenix was coming to your house for whatever reason, even if you don't like that mayor, like you're probably going to not set out just paper plates and plastic forks, right? You're gonna have the nice, the nice dishes out. And so God's going, you honor people in that position. You honor your mother and father. I'm the God of armies of angels. I'm the one who created all things. I'm the one who created you to be like me. And I've loved you greatly, far greater than anyone else has ever loved you. And you show no honor for me. Two ways you're doing that. First, he says, look at you people who are bringing these terrible sacrifices, right? You're not bringing the the best. You're not bringing the pure spotless animals. You're bringing the crippled animals. You're bringing the blind animals. At one point he says, you're bringing the stolen animals because it's your livelihood. And so you're not gonna bring your sheep, your lamb, you're gonna go grab your neighbors, right? And sacrifice that one. You guys have heard me talk about our dog, Millie, a lot. She's got like one foot that's turned outward like that. She's got short little stubby legs because she's part basset hound, part pit bull. She looks super awkward and weird. She runs all funny and she sheds all over the place. I'd sacrifice that animal in a heartbeat. <laughs> but God's calling for a pure, perfect sacrifice and they weren't willing to give that. They wouldn't do it. And then he turns his attention on the priests, the ones who are taking the sacrifice. And he goes, you are accepting this. And he has two really hard things he says to them. The first one is this. I wish that one of you would just shut the temple doors. Don't even bother showing up. Don't bring me your sacrifice. Don't bring me your tithe. Don't sing your songs. I hate your worship. Just close the doors. Could you imagine if God said, Missio, just don't even bother showing up this morning. Just close the doors. Stay home. Don't log on. Just don't even bother. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your singing. I don't want your half hearted worship. Just don't even bother. That's a harsh word. But at this point, God's going, I've been calling for your commitment, for your partnership, for your relationship, for your devotion, just as I've been devoted to you time and time again throughout centuries. And I've been patient with you and you're still not giving it. Just stop. Why bother? And the second thing he says that I'm gonna smear dung in your priests' faces. That's weird. That sounds really harsh. I don't know about you guys, I've never had dung smeared in my face. I'm not planning for it to happen, but I could imagine it doesn't smell good, it doesn't feel good, it's humiliating. It's probably one of the worst things someone could do to you, right? It's gross too. But is God just being gross and mean right now? I don't think so. You see, what would happen is, is they would take the animal sacrifices, and they wouldn't just sacrifice the animal and let it sit there, right? So what they would do is actually they would make do with, with the meat and with the fur and the things that they could use. But there's certain parts of an animal you can't really use, Right? Certain parts of the intestines and where gross things happen in the body of an animal, what are you going to do with that? And so they would take that part and they would take the parts of the intestine going to uh, an exit and all the stuff that's still inside of there. They would take that out of the camp as far away from their camp as they could to remove the smell and they would burn it. And when God says, I'm gonna smear the dung of the animal sacrifices you're accepting on your face, what he's saying is this, I will remove you from my camp. I will take you out of my presence. That is no less harsh, is it? But it gives us more of an understanding of what's actually going on here. It's not just being vindictive, but it's a hard word saying, listen, you are supposed to be the people who are bringing the rest of the people closer to me. And instead, you're taking bribes, you're taking terrible sacrifices, you're doing this just for a job. And if you keep this up, I would remove you completely from my presence. I actually preached on this part of Malachi in chapter two uh, in December at Redemption Peoria for a friend there. And I was like, of course, as a guest preacher, you're gonna give me the part that talks about God smearing poo on a priest's face. Yeah, thanks a lot, right? But I could say whatever I wanted there because I was a guest and then I was gone the next week and let, I let them get all the emails. But here, I like, now I get to do it with my own family and you guys are gonna be like, oh, this is awesome, yeah. So I don't get to get out of it, right? But when we were talking about that uh, and, I, and I, I was really working through that and going like, what? This is weird. What I got to do as a guest preacher there was call out the leaders of that church, right? Because God's talking specifically to leaders, He's talking to the priests, but I can't stop there. Like there is a reality, Anthony and I, I, I hope we're both listening to this, right? We have a responsibility as elders here, as pastors, that we're, we're, we're helping to equip one another to grow in the presence of the Lord. And if we're, we're just phoning it in and we're taking half-hearted worship and we're giving half-hearted worship ourselves, there's this like, this threat here. I'll remove you from my camp. And I think there is a more intense and a higher standard given to people in that kind of leadership. But, But you guys don't get to get off that easily. In Exodus 19, I have this verse, we can put it up on the screen. Exodus 19, when God's calling his people, when he first saved them out of slavery to Egypt and he gives them the law and he says, this is what I want you to be. This is the people I want you to be. This is what he says, Exodus 19. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, that's the partnership between God and his people, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine. Did you catch that? Whole earth is mine. I love all of it. You will be a special set apart people for the sake of the whole earth. Here's how. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest brings the people before the Lord. He helps mitigate this relationship between humanity and God. And he's saying, all of you, these are the words that you're to say to all the Israelites are a kingdom, a whole nation of priests, So I've called you and set you apart so that you will bring the other nations in. That's not the only time that that's said. Peter says it in the New Testament in uh, 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine. And he's speaking to Gentiles here. So do you know what Gentiles are? That's God's chosen people are the Israelites. Basically what the New Testament calls anybody else who's not of Jewish descent is a Gentile. Greeks, Romans, like anybody else, Right? And this is who he's speaking to. He's speaking to people who were not there at that mountain in Exodus 19. He's speaking to a people who do not have Israelite blood flowing through their veins. But because of Jesus, he says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He gives that same promise, that same blessing, that same identity that was given to Israel to everyone who's in Jesus now. And he says, because you're a kingdom of priests, you have a call. You get to proclaim the good news of this good king. Tell people how you were once in darkness and now you're in light. How you were once in death of your own destruction and sin and selfishness and rebellion and now you have life. And that's how the story ends, you guys. Revelation chapter one, verse six, repeats this for us. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, this is how he's, he's greeting the church when he writes this letter. It's from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us, what? A kingdom, priests, his God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. story ends with a beautiful bride of Jesus. The story ends with a whole nation of God's people, not just Israel, but now a, a renewed Israel, a renewed nation of people who are in Jesus. Whether you're Gentile or Jew, doesn't matter. Those of us who are in Jesus now have this identity of being a kingdom of priests, a task that comes along with that of proclaiming God's goodness to the whole world around us. And so here's the harsh reality is that when we fail at that, when we fail at that, we gotta hear these words given in Malachi. You choose not to have that identity, not to carry that with you, not to be my kingdom of priests, fine, I will literally give you what you want and you are removed from the kingdom. Removed from the camp. Harsh, you guys. But do you hear the glorious and good invitation in that, though? Here's the good news the Bible doesn't stop at the Old Testament, it doesn't stop at Malachi. About 400 years later, a better priest came, a perfect priest, a priest who would not accept impure sacrifices. In fact, that priest became the perfect sacrifice himself. Jesus was not only the better priest, but the better sacrifice too. And the pure, spotless lamb went on to the altar on our behalf. And his blood was spilled. And he was removed from camp. His body buried away in a tomb, away from the rest of the people. He became the very thing that God's people needed that you and I still need today because we couldn't do it. But that's usually like, you know, the the, the good news, the gospel is like, we couldn't do it, but Jesus did it, you guys. Hallelujah, amen. We'll see you next week, right? But the story doesn't end there either. He rises up out of that grave. He gives his spirit to you and I so that by his blood, by his spirit, you and I are priests now too in his image. Remember, the story started with God creating us in his image, living statues as his representatives. That's what we still are because of Jesus today. So we have this call that we must carry with us in the power of the spirit because of the blood of the perfect lamb, the perfect priest who stood in our place. We now are a kingdom of priests. I pray we can live that out. We have a weird week ahead of us, in our culture, in our country. One where probably half of America is gonna be just devastated and the other half of America is gonna feel like all their prayers were answered, right? And both of those groups of people need good news of the true king, of the true government that will never end and will never fail us. That there is one coming who will rule perfectly and justly and righteously forever. And it's easy for us to get caught up in either of those two camps, right? To place our hope temporarily in one of those things, but we have to remember as a kingdom of priests, we have to remember what our real hope is. And we have to go out with that real hope and share that with the people around us.